0: now I am calling you a liar senior Bob and if you lying which you are then you killed many and days bullets and there goes senior Bob.
1: so you want to watch a movie but you don't know which choosing the one can be a bitch but jared and drew have perfected the art so sit back relax and trust the dark it's dark for movie night what's going on everyone i'm drew
0: and i'm jared
1: and welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. This week, we're entering the Tarantino extended universe and covering the only film of Quentin's that I haven't seen yet. We're talking 2015's The Hateful Eight, starring Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, Jennifer Jason Lee, Walton Goggins, Tim Roth, Bruce Stern, Michael Madsen, Demian Bashir, and Channing Tatum. And I'm fairly sure that I just named 95% of the cast. How about it, Jared?
0: No, dude, I've, I've been jonesing for this movie to get hit. I mean, we'll get into my experience with the film, my history with it. Uh, this is one I have seen before, but it's one of those things, man, when you have a a, a, a compatriot who like also loves f- movies like you are to me and we talk about them all the time, when you find out they haven't seen a certain movie – like, I just get so excited. I'm like, I can't wait for them to see it so we can talk about it. And this is definitely one of those for me. And I'm super glad we hit it. And I'm so glad to to hear what you thought about this, because it's a little bit of a somewhat polarizing one of Tarantino's filmography, I would say.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's it's got a mixed overall uh, perception about it, but it's it's. You know when you're talking about Quentin Tarantino it's kind of it's one of those things we always say it's like it's degrees of great you know it's uh he he doesn't really have a bad movie in his repertoire if you ask me so um I think I think even though this might be towards the bottom of most people's Tarantino list that's not a reflection of its quality really
0: yeah no I think that's well said man completely
1: Right now on the board, we've got number one, You Can Count On Me, number two, Akiru, number three, M, number four, Rio Bravo, number five, Operation Condor, number six, Anomalisa, number seven, Amadeus, number eight, Pi, number nine, Universal Soldier, number 10, The Limey, number 11, The Hateful Eight, today's episode, number 12, The Straight Story, number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, number 14, The Karate Kid, number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, number 16, Dirty Harry, number 17, Tatan, number 18, Snatch, number 19, Strange Days, and number 20, the terminator
0: and if i'm not mistaken tonight once we're done talking about the hateful aid, i believe it is your week drew to put a nominee up on the board
1: yeah i believe so and i don't have one preloaded, so we're gonna be well, off know, the cuff today which i kind of prefer right
0: I, I prefer it too because you know something's probably gonna come up during our chat where you're gonna say or i'm gonna say you know i've never seen that or oh me neither and then it might be organic or you can always refer to the list you know we have these little off camera, so to speak, lists that we work from, from time to time.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, I think I've got, I mean, I've got a good list going of, of potentials and I'll, I'll probably pull from there. But like you said, who knows what, what will come up organically tonight.
0: Just to do a little streaming check here at time of recording, the theatrical version was available or is, I should say, on Netflix. But by the time this episode comes out, it's actually just going to have come off of Netflix, but they do have this sort of, this extended version that's kind of chopped up in like mini series pieces that should be available on Netflix. I think in perpetuity, as far as I know.
1: Well, yeah. So that's, I, I, I'm pretty sure that Netflix was the, the platform that gave Tarantino the opportunity to to release yeah. that. So I, I got to mm-hmm. believe that there's an extended I would think so too. license there, but who knows?
0: I would think so too. But at the very least, you could you could rent it from your usual suspects. Variety of sources, pay a couple of bucks and check it out if you haven't seen it before. Three, four bucks. Support the filmmaker and all the people involved and check out this movie, man. As mentioned, Drew, you are crossing off Crossing out a major filmography here. So The Hateful Eight is one of your choices. First, I want to ask how it got on the board, but I also want to ask you, how was it that you missed this one? Because at the time of its release, you were we were both huge Tarantino fans, I would think. And was this one that either just didn't intrigue you, you didn't really get around to? How was it that you didn't see this one?
1: This movie came out in one of the kind of lulls in my my movie watching years. Weirdly, that was kind of a period where I was a little bit down on Tarantino. And I don't know why. I I I do love Tarantino overall, um but there was I I think a period after Django Unchained there where I was kind of done with his shtick, you know? You know how you have those those things where you're just like it is so much a shtick or like a thing like like a a trademark that you kind of like can see through the facade of it for a little bit. And maybe you, you get like, it's the the film snobbery kind of thing where I was just like, I, all right, I'm, I, you're doing the same thing every time for me. I don't know. I, I got in that headspace about Tarantino for a little while and I'm, I'm fully out of that at this point. I appreciate him for, you know, the fact that he has such a unique style and trademark to, to what he does. Um, but I think I just was like, not as hot on him at that point. And on top of that, I think when this movie came out, it did get those mixed reviews that made me not as eager to go seek it out. So, yeah, it was just, it came out in a weird time for me. And I remember when it came out on streaming, it was on Netflix pretty quickly after it was released. And I remember starting to watch it and getting maybe 20 minutes in and just being like, I'm not feeling this vibe. I, I, this isn't what I was looking for. And,. I just I just never returned to it until now.
0: It's so interesting. I want to kind of go back to what we're you're talking about with the sort of snobbery sort of hipsterism. I think I think any film fan, and I know I certainly can relate to that, where we've talked in the past about when we went through our younger like film school quote unquote stretch where we got a little snobby in that way. But I also share your experience of getting snobby with a particular filmmaker. Maybe we're just tired of always hearing about this person. And, you know, like they're always, you know, everyone's just praising, praising, praising. It's just kind of like, okay, enough, enough. And I kind of, around that time, I had this idea that I would, I would often say to people like Tarantino is like Miles Davis. Like he's like, he plays the trumpet like better than anybody. But that's like all he does. And I always thought his movies were kind of like, ba-da-ba-da, and just kind of like, you know, shouting in your face like like a loud brass band, the loud trumpet. And I started to kind of trickle into this mentality about his movies of like, oh, he's kind of one note. Yes, 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 he's amazing. And it, it kind of you said a similar thing, I think, but it's like, yeah, he's great and all that, but but he really just does one thing whereas these other filmmakers I prefer, they dabble in different palettes and different colors and different emotions and I like that more. And I also have um, kind of let that go. I don't feel that way anymore. But in my mid to second half of my 20s, I was kind of there. So you were in um, a similar
1: headspace about it. That similar I was.
0: headspace. But I came to this movie with some level of excitement due to um, the 70 millimeter component being obtainable for me. So the when this movie hit theaters, it coincided with my kind of vibe of avoiding trailers and spoilers especially when it's a filmmaker I loved and I would see little little TV spots here and there but really try to avoid it and the only image I could remember is that close up on Sam Jackson's face and you're starting to see pictures aren't you? And it's like you like they really did a great job I think not really telling you much about the film even in the TV spots or whatever. And at the time I was living in Maine and just getting ready to move to Atlanta. And I was going to be driving down to Atlanta in my car with all my shit loaded up in it. And I was going to be spending the night halfway there in Virginia at our friend Allie Kuntz's place. And she was living in the outskirts of D.C. at the time. And there was a theater there that was doing the 70 millimeter playing of this movie, which we'll, um, we'll probably discuss. But it, when it came out, it was this whole roadshow thing that certain select major cities were doing. And normally we don't get any of that shit in Maine. So it was like a real opportunity of like, oh man, I can go see this in a major city. And the timing was just great. And uh, we'll get into my reactions to the movie. But that's... So I think you that saw
1: this in, D- in D.C. with Alley then?
0: In D.C. with Alley mm-hmm. in '70. And but even though I so I had these very specific circumstances that made me excited for that specific viewing. I still was feeling a little bit like I was saying earlier about Tarantino in general. of Like, yes, he's amazing, but he's just a trumpet player, so to speak, in my silly little metaphor. And like I said, I don't feel that way anymore. And I think this music, this movie is a big part of why I don't feel that way anymore. But, um, but yeah, so I have a very sort of. This movie, just the the whole experience of of not knowing where it was going and being blind to this movie's intentions and seeing it 70 millimeter just made it really one of the great first viewing experiences of my life. So it's a movie I just really care a lot about.
1: Our, our two experiences of seeing this or attempting to watch this for the first time, in my case, of like only getting 20 minutes in, could not be more different. Yeah. And like setting in like, you know, appreciation yeah. of it, like every yes. element was like yeah. the, the flip side.
0: Yeah, you bailed. You, I was watching
1: to... on my shitty ass TV, like it could not have been a worse way to watch this movie compared to like your like immaculate presentation <laughs> yeah. you know with a good friend like in a new setting like it's just like, like everything and the everything was working for you and working against me
0: <laughs> yeah i mean and there also i know you have felt it too many times and you were kind of in the wake of it there but there is this certain very specific excitement of moving to a whole new a brand new city mm-hmm. that just can kind of be like like it's just every like everything is more colorful and everything seems more exciting and For everything sure. seems possible. So I was kind of like literally halfway through my journey to get there. So, so yeah, that is so funny though, how different <laughs> like our viewing experiences were. But before, even though I'm so curious about your thoughts in this movie, do you want to do a little like Tarantino list of, cause like you, like we've said, you've seen all of his others and you saw this one this week. I was thinking we could do a little kind of a classic filmography tier list but we'll leave the hateful eight out of it for now and we'll we'll just say maybe towards the end of the recording how we feel about it where it falls in the list but i mean you know people love making these lists and i must say i like indulging in them too because when it's a great filmmaker almost no two lists are exactly the same because they're all they're all great
1: yeah we let's let's do our list without the hateful eight included, and then we can revisit it at the end and say where that 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 falls in. But um, we'll do we'll do his nine movies, which is um, you know the the eight that he directed, uh, as well as Death Proof, which is like half of a movie that he directed with Robert Rodriguez, the ground Grindhouse movies. Um, so and just to confirm,
0: we're doing Kill Bill as two volumes and two films, two right? separate films, correct? Yeah, even though in his
1: mind he sees it as one, but. But they're, they're such different movies. It, it totally. works to put them in, in rankings separately. You. Tarantino's um, wrong. <laughs> and also Death Proof, even though it's only half of a movie, like quote unquote, it, it still is close it's to a, a 90 own minute movie on its own. So yeah, we'll, totally. we'll include that. But speaking of Death Proof, that is my number nine. Uh, I'll, I'll start there and, and work my way up right ahead of that i've got jackie brown i know like recently it's become really popular to put jackie brown at the top of your tarantino rankings like i think it's a really really good movie i don't i don't necessarily think it's a great one but i've only seen it once i i should give it a revisit at some point to see if that changes after that i've got reservoir dogs i really like that movie um it's the script is great but it's definitely a movie from a first-time director in a lot of ways um, so I, I think, I think it's just not, not his best work, but I, I love it and I understand and, and as a historical object for like how he came to prominence, I love that movie. Number six is Django Unchained for me. Um, I, I really like that movie. The end, it loses its way a little bit. I think that movie is bloated and it doesn't need to be. It's a, it could be a tighter two hour movie instead of a really loose two and a half hour movie. Number five is Kill Bill Volume One for me. Number four is Kill Bill Volume Two for me. I think Kill Bill Volume Two is just a little bit ahead of it for me. I don't know. I just love it. it, it that's pure Tarantino to me. Number three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, total vibe movie. Love that movie for, for its vibes. Number two for me is Pulp Fiction, uh, masterpiece, but it's just edged out by Inglorious Bastards, which I think is damn near a perfect movie. What about you? Give me your list.
0: I like your list, and we do have some similarities, but obviously some big differences too. So, number nine for me, bottom of my list is Django Unchained. Um, I just don't really respond to that movie, and there are character decisions made in that movie that are just unforgivable. There are parts I like, and things about it I really like, but also... Tarantino's little cameo with an Australian accent just seems a little too... That's kind too, of what I'm
1: referring to. Yeah, like, why do we need this?
0: A little too self-indulg- self-indulgent. And I know that's a component of his films, and we love that about it too. But for me, that one doesn't work as well as some of the others. Number eight, I have Kill Bill Volume 1. So wow. for me, there's just... I know, it, and a lot of people really, really love Kill Bill Volume 1, but I really fall out of it with the sort of anime portions of the movie and some of the jokes like like pussy wagon that that is the vehicle that she's driving and just like some of it is just a little bit too much and i think he was just kind of and and he should have been feeling this way but i think he was like smelling himself a little bit and just thought like every idea was great it's like yeah we could do an anime movie in here pussy wagon isn't that funny and like you know i don't know but for me um the whole the sum of its parts doesn't add up to be like one of my favorites at all but okay number seven I have Jackie Brown and I'm right there with you where this has sort of seen this weird renaissance lately where people are loving it I'm not saying they're wrong if you dig it you dig it Um, but there are components of it that I didn't really react to I've only seen it twice and it has been probably four or five years so I'm definitely due to check it out again but it's one that's just always felt a little clunky to me and doesn't really move swiftly or I I don't know what it is. And maybe something about Pam Greer's performance, but I don't know. It doesn't really sing to me, but a lot of people dig it and that's cool too. Number six, I have death proof. I think this one is just really fun. And this is where we start getting impressive to
1: me that you, you have it that high on your list.
0: I just really remember Kurt Russell in that movie. I've only seen this one once by the way, I should say, but I just really liked it i thought it was a really interesting fun idea well executed great stunt work in and out quick and um i believe it was kurt russell's first time in a tarantino film too so it was just kind of cool to see him play this sort of serial killer like edgy villainous guy and um that was just kind of neat and again I'm just a sucker stuntman mike i'm just a sucker for its premise
1: no, it's it's a really. F- I, I I agree. It's a fun movie. I need to revisit it actually. It's just juicy. I want to watch a it for the stunts juicy again. Juicy meal.
0: Yeah, dude. That one at the end where she's like on the hood of the car going like sixty miles an hour, like it's it's insane. It's it's just great work there. Number five, I have Kill Bill Volume Two. Really, really dig this one. I like it a lot more than Volume One, for my personal tastes thinking the sequence when she gets buried alive is just so fucking intense and is so effective to me and all of the sort of training scenes that kind of go are shot in sort of a kind of a Hong Kong Chinese style of filmmaking from like the 70s like I just have more experience with that than say Japanese cinema so maybe that's one of the reasons I respond to volume two more than say volume one but um it just it just works and I don't know I, I I like it's rhythm and feeling more than volume one number four i have reservoir dogs just um just really love this movie i mean it's great what can you say for it's one of the all-time great debut films great dialogue uh cool premise just just great performances and some really great shots that i just that haunt me in a good way where i just think of the camera work on certain scenes i'm like god damn that's so fucking good number three i have pulp fiction i mean wow uh, one of the most uh, rewatchable movies of his on this list. And I actually wanted to tell you this about Tarantino movies in general. For the ones that I really love, they kind of fall into two categories where one is like, put it on anytime. I can re, I can watch it once a year, throw it on. And like Reservoir Dogs is one like that for me. And Pulp Fiction is one like that for me. But then there are others where it's like the first time I saw it was just like, holy fuck. And just blew me away. And then the, the freak, the ones like viewings two and three haven't contained the same amount of magic. Um, Pulp Fiction is among the most rewatchable of his for me. And I love it so, so much. But I do agree with my buddy Graham. He has told me this before. And I'm like, you know, you're kind of right. Like scenes like where like Bruce Willis in the motel with his girlfriend, those kind of bogged down a little bit. So it's not exactly perfect. But goddamn, how can you criticize that movie? It is so, so good number two is once upon a time in hollywood i absolutely just had such a great first experience with it where i went in fresh saw it in theaters it was just like oh my god this movie is just great uh, another one that has kind of changed my opinion on him it's like no he does do a lot of stuff he he always has his signature but he does take a lot of different pacing and a lot of different choices and. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is is so is so slow in such a refreshing way, dude. I love that movie. My number one today, if you were to ask me tomorrow, it might be different, is Inglourious Bastards. Like, we share
1: our number we one. We
0: share our number one. And again, I think I that's the say, only
1: ranking that we share.
0: Hateful Eight has not been said yet, but Inglourious Bastards for me is- uh, Probably his most rewatchable and has some of his most memorable scenes. I will say I didn't respond to it very deeply on the first viewing, but I have since just fallen in love with it. I think I kind of went into it arms crossed the first time. It was like, this guy's poking fun at World War II. Like, this shit really happened. Um, <laughs> but I have since, like, dropped that, you know? It, well, it was kind of in some way the first time he took on uh, at least a segment of reality. Because up until that, it was all sort of like... You know, right. surrealism and just original stories. So when the, the trailers were coming out, I was like, God, oh, Tarantino, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I, I don't feel that way at all anymore. And uh, I really think it's just a great movie. And that whole scene in the bar, and it's just so many great scenes in it. The intro of the movie is, on, is unreal. It's just, it's great.
1: As opposed to what we've been saying about a couple of these other ones, that one is one where it fully justifies the two and a half hour runtime. I don't think there's a single scene in that movie that I would cut out no and there's
0: so many great gray characters in it too I think the German sniper character all of them yeah who like we kind of like but then he turns out to be an asshole and then we don't like him but then we're sad when he Spoiler alert! When he dies, like it's just like it's it's interesting. It's How just about the Diane Kruger
1: character, like the actor that is is you know a a double agent, um, or oh, like yeah. Michael Fassbender as like the most like stuffy British type who also like goes undercover and like can pull it off and is like a badass. Like I don't know, just yes. all the all every character. You know what? You know what? There's one character that you cut out of that movie. It's fucking Eli Roth as the Bear
0: Jew. Oh, you don't I see I, I can't he's okay.
1: stand Eli Roth he's in that okay. movie. It's okay.
0: You know it was we all know he was well, not everyone knows. He was supposed to be Sandler. Yeah. But I think I think Eli Roth Adam is, Sandler like
1: not another character named Sandler. It, yeah, no, Adam was Sandler <laughs> was originally cast as that character.
0: Which you know what it makes so much sense because one of the things Paul Thomas Anderson was drawn to about Sandler? And I think Tarantino had picked up on this, too. Um, I've heard PTA say in interviews that one of the things he loves about him is like you like when he goes enraged in movie scenes, like even in comedies like his, he gets like great white shark eyes and it looks like he's like truly losing it. And like Mm -hmm. really, really pissed. And I bet Tarantino had noticed that too. It was like, Oh man, like he's, when he's bashing the shit out of someone's head, it would be great to see that sort of crazy look in his eyes. For sure.
1: Well, Eli Roth does not pull that look off in my opinion, but, uh, (laughs) we, his his accent is pretty bad. (laughs) We brought this story up on the podcast before. I think I can't remember if it was actually in one of the episodes or not, but, um, we when we've been talking on for the show we've talked about this but the, the there's the story that Paul Thomas Anderson tells of being on set on Licky, the set of Little Nicky when he was trying to get Sandler to come work with him on Punch-Drunk Love and he ran into Quentin on on the pun, or on the Little Nicky set <laughs> and Quentin was like what what are you doing here no 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 you're because he was trying to be the first to get him a dramatic role
0: yeah, and he wanted him as... Because as, as, at the time, even though the movies came out, um, you know, several years apart, uh, Tarantino was writing this around that time. So, like, he was he was there kind of trying to get Sandler into *Inglorious Passage really funny. I don't even... And they it, had the thought at, like, the same time. It's, so it's bizarre.
1: But just the territorial nature, like, yeah. that yeah. Quentin's like, no, you're stealing yeah. my great idea.
0: <laughs> no, wait a minute, I thought this was just me.
1: Yeah, it's, so funny.
0: It, but yeah, dude, I mean, just... Run down the list, and if anyone said, told me like Django was their favorite, I would not be like, You're fucking insane. Like, it's just different, whatever hits you when you're talking about great filmmakers like this. And this is gonna sound cheesy and it's a little over the top, but like, he literally is one of the positives of like being born when I have been born. I know that sounds like way over the top, but like, literally, like. We, we've, we've, grown, we've been lucky and fortunate to grow up alongside some really incredible filmmakers and some really incredible movies, and they've been really important to me in my life, and he's one of those people where I'm just like, yeah, I'm just glad I was, you know, it was one of the benefits of being born in this slice of time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Have you listened to Quentin Tarantino's podcast? I have not. Um, it's called The Video Archives, and uh, it's him and Roger Avery, who's one of his uh, filmmaker buddies who he he worked at the video store with that he you know famously worked at when he was you know obsessive about all these these various vhs's of you know b movies and you know kung fu movies and whatnot um when he was working there he worked with roger avery so they do this show together and they revisit movies that they loved from like when they were working in that store um and it's a really great show i i I recommend it i mean tarantino is uh, I feel like as a personality, he's one of those love him or hate him types. In terms of like, can do I have the stamina to listen to this guy for an hour and a half? Um, I personally do, but I don't blame you if it's not for you.
0: <laughs> yeah, like he's such an interesting guy for me because I, I love I love his movies so much, as I said, and I do like hearing him talk about him. But he's so uh, dominating in conversation sometimes that I'm like, I got just got to take a break, man. Sorry. Like, I love you. Don't change because your personality is part of what brings this art to the world. So do your thing. But I, I, I do have to do it in morsels sometimes.
1: Well, I think the nice thing about video archives with Roger Avery is that he has so much respect for Roger Avery and they've like been friends for so long that I think they know how to balance each other out in a really good way. So it makes it much more listenable than like, you know, when he's on the stuff like re like the rewatchables or, you know, any of those ringer podcasts, like I enjoy his, his appearances Mm -hmm. for the most part. But like you're saying, there are times where he dominates the conversation and like talks over people. And you're just like, dude, just give it a rest for a second. I want to hear everyone talking about this. Yeah, Uh, He can be very, very, yeah, conversationally dominant.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, that, and that's that's all good. I mean, we love the guy, like we're saying, but um,
1: you take the good with the bad with Quentin.
0: And I do. It does seem like that podcast you're referencing, because I have I have heard the the premise of it. It seems like it's going to be a wealth of information for people like us who want some sort of deep cuts, off the beaten paths, maybe a little different movies, and maybe we'll we'll poach some of theirs. And put them up on the board just like this is a Tarantino recommendation or maybe yeah. not straight from their podcast. But I mean, he's asked a lot in just general interviews of like, are something some recommendations? Yeah. And, you know, he's he's again one of those people who just has such a deep knowledge. Um, it would be great to kind of get more of his input. For sure. And there is a movie in this film, The Hateful Eight, tonight's movie. That is heavily referenced yes. and is a movie that I adore and I can't wait to hit that. But, oh,
1: we both know what we're talking about. Yeah, but I will sure, also say sure. before we move off of Video Archives, I will give a recommendation to our listeners. If you enjoyed our episode on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, the Bond movie that we covered, um, I highly recommend the Video Archives two-episode coverage of Moonraker. Uh, because mm. if you if you want to see a different flavor of Bond in terms of the far more campy and absurd side of Bond, Moonraker is so much fucking fun, and their conversation on it is really interesting. So.
0: Would you say for the most part they're glowing or should we not know? Should we just Uh, go in and and find out for ourselves? I
1: won't totally spoil it. I will say that Roger Avery, it's one of his favorites and Quentin is not quite as high as he is on it. So I'll I'll, I'll give you that. But but yeah, I mean, it's it's worth listening to. And, And Moonraker is a fucking hysterical movie. Like everyone should go watch it. I love that movie so much.
0: As mentioned, I saw this movie in theaters and loved it. I've seen it probably four or five time since then still love it now but i'm very curious drew for your first experience this week how do you feel about the hateful eight
1: i really dug it yes it's i i don't i don't want to spoil where it's going to sit in my rankings for tarantino um but i think probably over the course of talking about it it will uh it'll become apparent kind of where it sits in my list but yeah i think i think it's a really really good movie um it's I think it's bloated. I don't think it needs to be as long as it it is. And I have some things I want to touch on in terms of the bloatedness. Um, but overall, I had a really, really great time with this movie. I think you know it's full of all the classic Tarantino trademarks. You know his his dialogue, his uh, the way he just like lets his characters monologue, and and you know it's got. That you know his Robert Richardson collaborations all kind of have a similar look, and it's got a lot of that action going on, which is just always beautiful to look at. I think his use of a camera is is up there with the best um both in the way that he moves a camera and and uses it to tell a story, but also just in the general look of his films they 're always just beautiful to look at it's got the trademark you know way over the top violence and <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, there were moments in this movie where I was just like, "Whoa!" I did not see it going that far with it. But you know, that's that's what he likes to do, um, and and I don't know how he keeps finding ways to to make you know kind of catch me off guard with some of that. Uh, yeah. I, it's always it's always crazy to me how he's able to do that in every movie because you you go in expecting it and it still still shocks you at times. Yeah. Um,
0: well, well, to your point, these last two movies, like the violence doesn't really arrive until later. And the hateful late it's like pretty much the whole second half of the film. Right. But we're talking ninety minutes into it almost. But once upon a time in Hollywood is like the last ten minutes. Like it's not a violent film up until then. So no. he he's kind of got he seems like he's in the mood now to kind of lull us into this false sense of security where we're like, okay, maybe he's changed in his older years <laughs> and then it just is just slammed with ultra violence. You
1: it's, know? Yeah, it's impressive that he he's able to pull that rug pull on me every fucking time we go. But yeah, he does. Um Yeah. I I think, I think just overall, I had a really good time watching it. I will say this episode is going to be a little bit more just general reaction heavy on my part because I wasn't, wasn't able to watch the movie until this morning. I've had a pretty hectic week. Um, so I've only watched it once and it's, you know, it's very fresh in my mind, but I don't, I don't know if I'm going to have quite as many specifics as Jared, who, I mean, it sounds like you've watched this a few times now, right? How many times have you seen it?
0: Um, Probably five or six, honestly. Okay. Like, it's it's a movie like...
1: That's impressive for a movie that only came out seven years ago.
0: I think I, I was so I was so enamored with it when it came out because, again, w- you and I had, at this point in time, a similar feeling about Tarantino. Right. As I mentioned when we were doing our tier list, Django is my least favorite of his films, and it was the one he had just recently made, so I was kind of, like, swinging against him a little bit, thinking, like, yeah, he's a little one-note. Mm-hmm. This was the movie where I thought, oh, he is not one note. Like, and yes, his signatures are, are in this movie. The ultraviolence, like you mentioned, and, and, and the, um, the characters. And there's a lot of reservoir dogs in this movie, too. That's his only other movie that's like one location. Kind of the, a bottle uh, episode like, of a movie. Yeah, and paranoia getting cranked up. And, like, and yeah. like, who to trust, you know? But outside of Reservoir Dogs and this, a lot of his movies were not uh, geographically contained in, like, a room or a singular location. And they sprawled, and that's dope, too. But this was one where I was like, oh, my God. Like, yes, it has his trademarks, but it's like a puzzle box. And it's like a who's who, and it's like a different type of movie. And, you know, it's very sort of stagey and different.
1: Yeah, and, it's like a play. And
0: yeah, it's totally like a play, and it's very, it's very um, kind of self-contained. And it always made me thought of. I saw in an interview, he was being asked or talking about Inglorious Bastards, and he was talking about the the bar scene in that film where, he, and he said his objective for this scene, and that's one of I think the best scenes he's ever done, which is obviously saying a lot. But he was saying that his objective was just to pull the tension. For as long as he could and just get to the breaking point but just that was the that was the intention of that whole scene and it's it's so effective at that in my opinion but to me this felt like he did that for an entire movie where he did like particularly once they get to the haberdashery and beyond it's just steady tension building more and more tension more and more tension more and more second guessing what's going to happen. And then it just explodes for the last like 45 minutes. It just goes off the rails. And I had never seen him do a movie like that before where his sort of trademark craziness was so simmering for so long and took so long to arrive. And that's what I thought was so great. And that's when I kind of fell back in love with him as a filmmaker when I was like, oh, he is not one note. He, he has like styles and like vibes that are, that are, Part and parcel with his films, but he tackles a lot of different rhythms and different things. And this is one of my favorite examples of it. And I honestly think it's one of his most underrated films, just for my taste. Mm-hmm. Like, not a lot of people talk about it as one of his classics. And I just, I just love it. I think it's, it's so different. It's not perfect. I think, um, you know, you mentioned bloat as being an issue you had with it. Like, I definitely think a lot of the carriagey stuff early on in the film is it's just a really big barrier to entry. I think this might be his hardest movie, this and maybe Jackie Brown to get into because it's, and I don't blame you by the way, for you bailing. On no, I bailed viewing. during
1: the carriage stuff. Yeah, yeah.
0: Cause it's like, it's just a lot of tough language to hear. It's very talky. We don't, we don't really know what's going on. You know, the stagecoast arrives, Samuel Jackson and Kurt Russell meets. We don't know. We kind of get a little, breadcrumbs of how they know each other there's this bounty they're both bounty hunters and it's like a lot of the conversation and a lot of the dialogue in those scenes in the carriage i think are really important to character building especially when we see of what happens once they get to the cabin and when we eventually our like hours later find out the truth right. that they are actually the only three people we could trust in the film funny enough but um
1: before we move off of the carriage scene, I do want to just say like like I said, like that is where I, I bailed on the movie and I think part of it for me too was Kurt Russell and Jennifer and Jennifer Jason Lee are going so big that it, it's 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 a little grating right out of the gates. It, it it like you're saying, like it took me a while to settle into the mode of this movie. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's and a big I mean, part of why
0: I think I, I completely agree with you and even more particularly with Kurt Russell. Like I think of that scene where he's like uh, at this point Walton Goggins is in the is in the carriage mm-hmm. and he's telling that story of how Samuel Jackson broke out of Wellenbeck prison camp and and Kurt Russell is like and hearing Erskine Mannix's boy talk about how anyone handled dirt themselves during wartime makes me want a horse laugh and he like does this thing with his mustache it's just like so big and so over the top that I I mean first of all from even for me it's a little bit too much but I could but it just adds to your point of like it's it's not easy to get into this movie's rhythm it kind of gets in its own way I don't, that's not really how I'm meaning it to sound but I think you know what I mean but I do think the movie comes becomes just about perfect from when they arrive at the haberdashery and on. I really think, and that's the bulk of the movie. Obviously, I think all of that is pretty much untouchable and about perfect. And we're talking about an hour and forty five minutes of like I wouldn't change a thing about this. Um, but uh, do you, do you feel that way about that stretch? Is this do you see bloat there too, or
1: I need to watch it again to to like firm up my opinions of like what i could lose versus what i couldn't right i think you're i think you're you're more right than wrong on that for sure i i felt bloat there but i think that's more just runtime than it is like scenes that i i feel like are are unnecessary Mm -hmm. because i mean everything that happens in in the cabin like you're saying is important to, to the characters and understanding their motives and and understanding like the whole The whole whodunit of it that that we're kind of introduced to partway through the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, dude. I, um, yeah, so I I think you're more right than wrong, but I still feel like it does drag at points during the, the cabin a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I
0: could see that, but I also, I like how we're coming at this conversation, Where you're coming off super fresh, having seen it earlier today, and I've you know got a lot of history with it, so I do think that's kind of good. Like, that's very justified to be like, yeah, I don't know, I could see maybe losing five minutes from the cabin stuff, Uh, but then maybe you won't feel that way when you see it again, years or whenever down the line. Uh, But yeah, you got to acknowledge those first viewing feelings because those are sometimes the cleanest in some way.
1: You do, but I but I think it's in it with Tarantino. It's particularly interesting to talk about because. I often have this reaction with Tarantino movies where the first time I watch them, it doesn't totally connect with me. And I feel like the bloat. And then I go back to them and they, they almost universally, I appreciate them better the second or third time that I watch them than I did the first time. That's pretty much true of every movie of his for me. It's especially true of ones like once upon a time in Hollywood where I was very mixed on that movie. The first time I watched it now, it's like, clearly like pretty close to the top of my list of his. Um I I elevated on Django Unchained, I elevated on Pulp Fiction. Like like all of these I liked more them the more I sat with them and watched them. So I could see this this, you know, improving yeah. for me on future viewings.
0: Also too, I want to take a little like detour into talking about this movie's theatrical release just for a minute because sure. it was pretty unique. So at the time, seventy millimeter was starting to come back in fashion like the year before and in very, in very specific filmmakers and not in a major way, but a year or two before Paul Thomas Anderson had released the master, which was in 65, I believe and was showing at certain specialty theaters and stuff. So that was a little bit of a thing. And then we had the hateful eight come out in 70 millimeter with this sort of roadshow sort of feel to it. And then shortly after that, we had Dunkirk that Christopher Nolan did. So there was a little bit of this sort of thing going on around that time. Mm -hmm. But it was cool seeing it in the theater, not only just because of the 70 millimeter, and it is a beautifully shot movie, which I'm sure we'll talk about more later on. And it utilizes 70 millimeter in a really fun way that's kind of not expected. But also it had this whole, like, roadshow component. Like, you got a brochure when you got there, which actually is still on my wall. And it's like this, like, multi-page, like, nice material booklet and there was an intermission There was like a full-fledged like five to ten minute intermission i believe and the it,
1: roadshow cut of the film is actually like six or seven minutes longer as well
0: yeah just with that and i think that's just that oh it is okay cool yeah, yeah no well
1: i think that i think what i heard was there were a couple of alternate takes there were there were shots that that tarantino um had in both like 70 millimeter format and, and, uh, 35 millimeter, the standard format that, that he would shoot in, um, where for the, the DVD, you know, home release, like streaming release of it, he preferred the non 70 millimeter shot because the 70 millimeter just couldn't be appreciated on the small screen. So there's a slightly different edit to it. Um, and some alternate takes, uh, for that, for that roadshow release, but yeah
0: that's just cool but i do i really do think that intermission helped out with the experience bring intermissions back yeah they're a good idea take a breather walk away from the movie
1: avatar 2 like, should have had an intermission
0: have a pee break and then come back because you know we've talked with a lot of guests on the show or at least several who like drinking coca-cola and eating popcorn during a movie i do the same Like you have a a large Coke and you're watching a three hour movie and you're really into it and you have that terrible decision point of like, when do, when does it feel like nothing significant is going to happen in the next three minutes and I can walk away from this movie? Uh, Yeah, I'm with you, dude. Let's bring back the fucking intermission for anything over two and a half hours.
1: Dude, I, and I, I understand film projection and, and structuring your schedule as a movie theater is more complicated if you add that in. But the reality is, it's like, with a movie this long, you're only going to get three or four screenings of it on a certain screen in a day. And is it really that much of a difference to the schedule if you add five minutes of intermission to each one of those? Like, it's not.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's worth I'll, it. You know, if you had to ask me to vacuum, like, hey, you pro intermission, I would have said no. But now that we're bouncing it around, like, I think it is... It is kind of a cool thing to do.
1: It is. It, and, it, and it makes it feel more special. You mentioned that you enjoyed the structure of this story. And I mean, I think Tarantino is a master of structure in general. He, you know, really broke the form a lot with Pulp Fiction and his way of editing that movie out of order. So, you know, in relation to this movie, what are your thoughts on the structure of it? And, and what did you want to say there?
0: Oh, my God. It, it might be my it's one of my favorite elements about the movie, honestly. And you're right. He does. He he's always since he started. He's played with time, and you know we we mentioned earlier.
1: Well, and perspective too. I think it's it's more than just time. Mm-hmm. I think it's also shifting perspective and and showing a thing that like like you know the way that this movie goes back to show you how certain characters showed up there like late in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. You know he does that kind of stuff with perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And he uses. He uses it, too, in such a good way of, like, choosing what information he gives to the audience when, and playing in this sort of nonlinear space is such a strength for that. And again, I do see that commonality of Reservoir Dogs, where we we see, we get introduced to these characters at a tension moment in a singular location, and then we get these flashbacks of, like... We eventually find out that someone's a crooked, you know, someone's an undercover cop and all this stuff. And it and it pieces everything together. So I'm not saying he's never done anything like this before, but I had never really seen it delivered in this way. Where, again, we get this, like, don't really know who to trust, don't really know what's going on for, I would say, an hour and 15 minutes. And everything really changes and starts to go off the rails with the story that Samuel Jackson tells Bruce Stern about finding his son and executing him in the wilderness in this kind of crazy, heinous way. And then that scene ends with Sam Jackson shooting Bruce Stern in quote-unquote self-defense after kind of stoking the flames to get to the point for him to draw the gun. And then it cuts and we get that Tarantino voiceover And it's kind of this like palate cleanser, but things have started going crazy. And then we get the coffee poisoning bit. And that shit is bananas and everything that happens there. And then we have Sam Jackson working with Walton Goggins to figure out who poisoned the coffee and all this stuff. And then we have Channing Tatum in the basement who has been like disguised like a great magic act the whole time. Shooting in the floor, and then we go back in time. We see all these changes, like it it resets the entire movie in our head, and it's it like builds in a second viewing within a first viewing. It's in, and I think actually Glass Onion does something a little similar. It does,
1: yeah, yeah. Not to spoil Glass Onion, but yeah,
0: yeah. It's like, oh man, I really like this structure, and. I think it's so fun, and especially if you go back and watch watch it on second viewing like the 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 faces that everyone's making are just exactly perfect where you can read them either way, but when you know what's going on, they all make more sense like like the face that or just to, to one example is when they first arrive at the haberdashery and the British guy sees Daisy and he get he's playing with that hammy over the top accent on purpose. And he's like, you must be so cold, you poor thing. And she gives him this little smile. But she, on first viewing, you could read it as her being a little flattered at the attention to some degree. But on second viewing, you see it, her acknowledging the performance he's putting on and enjoying it. But then she covers it up really quick, too. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much shit like that that just makes you re- re-evaluate everything. But what's so cool about this structure, again, is that It allows you to do that within the first viewing, too, by flashing back to certain points and having that, kick it open, kick the door open. But we know exactly what led up right to that. And we see all of these bandits kind of getting into character. And we see the look that English Pete Hickox or whatever his character's name is giving to Bruce Stern, like, don't fuck this up as he's putting his gloves on. And so it gives us that second view experience baked into the first thing and again yeah. the ending this movie closes like a freight train it's a super intense kind of finale and the final cherry on the top is this kind of asshole that we really hate in walton goggins kind of gets a little bit of redemption at the very end and we end up kind of liking him at the very closing of this film or I, at least i did so yeah. But structurally, I think those are the things I find so gleeful:
1: is yeah. the playing with
0: time and the and the reevaluation of everything that came before.
1: I really appreciate that about this movie. But what I will say is, I almost feel like it needs to be more nonlinear than it is. Mm. And by yeah. that, I mean I think part of my problem with the bloatedness of this movie is it spends so much time on the lead up to the haberdashery mm-hmm. that it doesn't pull me in right away. And I think this movie would have benefited from maybe starting at the haberdashery, starting with all these characters meeting each other, then gone back to give us the Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell kind of intro later so that it's like you're, you're, I I think it could have benefited it in terms of pulling you into the story more because you're more just like, Taken with all these characters that you're falling in love with right out of the gates and then you're getting the story of how they got there you know when you get to it as opposed to just being very linear about it and being like here are your main characters here they show up and here are all the side characters that they don't trust you know I and and I think that brings me into a conversation that I wanted to have with you that's that's really related to this which is. This is the, the second movie that Tarantino made without Sally Mankey. Sally Mankey was his longtime editor. And I think that in a lot of ways, she was his magic potion. She just knew how to structure his his work and knew how to, to make everything sing. And I think from the point that she passed away very tragically at like the age of like 50 or something like that, um, she passed away in 2008. I believe which was like right after inglorious bastards came out and every you know every movie from that point forward I have felt a little bit of that bloat where I kind of feel like maybe she was this this hand that was reining him in just ever so slightly to make things feel that much tighter does Mm. that make sense it does make sense I think I think I agree with you
0: in terms of the bloat and on this film. I do think there are five to eight minutes that could probably be trimmed and the movie would move a little bit swifter. We kind of mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but there is this sort of extended semi series version on Netflix that I have kind of just rejected and not really had an interest in seeing because as much as I love the characters and love the world of this film, I don't need more of it. I feel like as at the theatrical cut, it's kind of at its breaking point anyway. We both are kind of thinking we could lose a couple of minutes here. So I think I agree that Sally played a role in maybe trimming some of the excess and trimming some of the fat. But I do think that for me anyway, bloat aside, structurally this movie is perfect because if we get introduced to these characters at the haberdashery earlier on in the timeline of the film, uh, of like the watch experience, then when we have the arrival of kurt russell and sam jackson on first watch we just immediately know that everything's off because all of these people are missing and everyone's just pretending like like it would it wouldn't work i think the other thing that we're afforded from the structure too is when we get the flashback to the gang arriving and what the, and how they go about the the murders of the people there we get this incredible cloud over that whole stretch of the film where we just know everyone in these scenes is doomed. And Tarantino plays with that so well by having the actors playing the civilians dial it up the perfect amount to the point of like, it's a, it's a little over the top, like everything's so great here in the mountains, but it's, Perfect in, in in that way because it it just adds this sickening sweetness to what we know is something terrible is gonna happen. But we just see this like this like pretty charming, interesting woman from Australia, and this 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 woman who runs the place seems super nice. This guy playing chess, and we just we just know it's gonna go disastrously bad. And through the structure of the film, we have so much more dread. Yeah. as of audience in that sequence, but yeah, I agree with you on bloat. That Sally probably could have trimmed. Well, but I a wasn't. From this. I
1: wasn't suggesting we we straighten that out. I, I'm suggesting more convolutedness. I'm saying like, I'm saying you you don't let the audience in on the fact that Kurt Russell and Samuel L. Jackson have all this history until later. Like, oh,
0: I see what you're saying. Yep. Yeah. 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 yeah so yeah. I'm not. I'm not mm-hmm.
1: saying like you you move things yeah. so that you get things in order i don't want that i want i want more yeah. out of order
0: i got you i got you i think the
1: straightforwardness of having like all of that in the beginning of the movie drags the movie out makes it feel longer than it should and and like would be more fun if you just show up at the beginning right at the haberdashery and mm-hmm. you start with kurt russell walking in the door of the haberdashery.
0: Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying Yeah With the whole The kick it open thing Which which cracked me up By the way I don't know if that worked For you comedically Oh it was great The You gotta kick it open and, That door's a whore And like the I mean the guy who plays Bob the Mexican Is That's the character's name He is So funny in this movie I think uh, The guy who plays OB the stagecoast driver Is hilarious Like there's a lot of comedy To be had in this movie And a lot of I'd say 90% of it works for me but um those two in particularly really kinda cracked me up. It's like when how OB always keeps drawing the short straw and always has to be the one who goes out into the weather and it's always like just, I ain't going out of that shit ever again. It's just like so funny. But um but yeah, I, I again I'm just really happy that you really liked it because like we kind of said, um, there's a lot of people have issues with this movie and I get it, but I, I just think it's really it's pretty underrated.
1: Yeah. Well we're I was going to say, related to the structure of this, we got to talk about the movie that this is in a lot of ways riffing on.
0: Absolutely.
1: This movie is in a lot of ways Tarantino's remake of The Thing. And I mean, that's true in just, you know, the very obvious sense of like, oh, it's a group of guys stuck in a, uh, you know, a cabin in the middle of a snowstorm that can't you know, are, are isolated from humanity and they're like, they don't trust each other. There's, there's a, uh, somebody is not telling the truth and you can't tell who at any given time. It's just the general, you know, just dread of that kind of situation. It, it's definitely playing on, but, uh, I mean that, it, you know, the connection to the thing extends from Kurt Russell being the star of both, but also, you know, Ennio Morricone doing the score. And even this movie uses some Ennio Morricone, uh, work mm-hmm. from the thing that was not put in that movie. Also,
0: um, shout out to Ennio Morricone on a bit of a dartboard heater. Two weeks in a row, we've, we've seen one of his scores. Yeah. But yeah, that is definitely another another comparison.
1: But yeah, did, I mean, did you know about that connection the first time you saw it, or was that something you kind of came that to was all the
0: time? Because people who know Tarantino and I, I would I would have put myself in this category at that time as well know that he's a big borrower he likes to to do hat tips and homages to moves uh to movies and films that he loves but he filters it through himself and, and he's not a con artist like he just likes to acknowledge what came before and again there are those who argue he is it. a
1: con artist in some ways but and yes. i disagree with and i big agreed a hundred percent i'm with yeah you, but
0: but um This was the first time that he was doing it to a film that I knew super well. A lot of times he's doing movies from like the 70s and the 80s that were maybe like cult classics then or like VHS backroom hard to find sort of movies that he really digs. And I just don't get the references this was the first time it was like, this is a movie that I love. And I, and I picked up on a lot of it in the first viewing experience and didn't know anything about it going in, that it was going to have a lot of the thing elements. And as the, the scene that really brought me into it on first viewing was when they are hammering the stakes to the outhouse and the, the Ennio Morricone score is sweeping up and we're getting literally the rope laid to lead to a shack outside, which is a, uh, we don't see the rope laid, but that's a like sort of guidelines are a big component of the thing. And I started hearing the music. and I was like, oh, this sounds like the thing. Oh, they're in the winter. That is that guideline into the storm. This is the thing type of thing. <laughs> the thing type of thing. thing type of thing. And then as it kept going, it kept picking up little details. And I was like, that's a That's a thing. Shout out. That's another one. But again it to me as like a super fan of the thing and a defender of Tarantino in terms of the way he uses influences like this story is wholly original. Oh and yeah. And it just and it does these kind of fun additions that for us fans of the thing will catch. And
1: I will say I would love to see Tarantino take on a straight up horror movie though. Cuz yeah. I mean his movies have horror elements but you know this movie is not it's not doing the same thing that The Thing is. Yeah. It's, it's, very, it's very different. It's mostly just like setting, mood, and, and structure-wise that it resembles uh, The Thing. But it's not, um, I guess not structure-wise because The Thing is a very straightforward narrative. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, you get what I'm saying.
0: I get completely what you're saying. And also, if I, unless I'm mistaken, almost none of his films have any element of the supernatural to them. Maybe you could say Kill Bill. But there's never been like a ghost or like, you know, a sort of quote unquote more traditional horror movie type of villain.
1: Well, I guess you could make the argument that Inglorious Bastards takes place in an alternate universe. That's there's, true. There's and a of time element in Hollywood, that too. In some there's way. a
0: multiverse element for sure. <laughs> but um and I agree with you that hi- A lot of his films have horror components to them, but they're all about like the the horrors that can be found within humanity. It's never about something like an alien or, or, you know, some some external force. Yeah. 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 I'd love to see him like make a movie about like a group of people being stalked by tigers in the jungle or something like that would be really cool. But anything, anything. But I agree. I'd love to see his take on a horror film. But yeah, so I caught on a lot of it uh, and on first viewing and it was really fun for me because like I said, I normally miss those things that he's referencing. But this was the first time I was like, I know what you're doing here and I love it because I also love that movie.
1: Quick question about The Outhouse. Mm-hmm. Was there a purpose for the gun being thrown into The Outhouse, like like being mm-hmm. torn apart and thrown out? Yeah. like I was anticipating that was going to circle back in some way, but it really doesn't if I remember I th- correctly.
0: I think, it's, I think it's maybe two things. <laughs> Certainly one thing. Uh, the idea, I think, is that no one would ever reach into a bunch of shit to retrieve that gun. And it gives us a little snippet of honesty into OB's character. Because we actually see that he follows through and throws the gun away. Um, assuming we can believe what we see in in the film which the film never suggests that we can't It plays everything very honestly um, but um, which is funny in, in a story that has so much lying involved
1: well, but it just feels like it's 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 the idea of like the gun in the first act like Mm -hmm. that gun is supposed to come back from a a storytelling perspective and it doesn't yeah maybe he's toying with that maybe he's toying with that sort of storytelling convention that's the kind of subversion that bothers me sometimes is like (laughs) where where it's just like oh you didn't see me not doing that coming and it's like no but you gotta do something you can't just sit on your hands yeah I mean I don't don't mind that it didn't bother me watching the movie but like thinking about it later I was like that never came back, mm. and that's
0: kind of weird yeah. that they set that up at all. Well, I wanted to, I mean, as we're talking about kind of little, like not little things, but things here and there, what did you think of the voiceover, the Tarantino voiceover that's
1: used, I think, just in the middle? You know, I didn't mind it, but it is one of those things where I can see someone being annoyed by it, because it is you know it's it's the Tarantino persona he just inserts himself he can't fucking help himself you know and like yeah. it's the it's it's a much to me it's a much better version of what he did in Django where he literally like put himself in the movie like in a physical form not just a voice and in that movie it's a disaster like it, it just should never have happened but in this yeah. movie it you know it doesn't bother me but i can totally understand it not working for someone how did it how did it work on you
0: i mean it it worked great for me, and I I think like when he chooses to quote unquote break the fourth wall or whatever we would call it, like when he inserts himself in the movie, it becomes a gaggle of hits and misses. And I completely agree with you. The Django one is an ultimate miss. Like oh my god, it's it's awful. But and this and then I'd say also in a movie like Reservoir Dogs, I really like it. Like he's he's pretty good in Reservoir Dogs, and he's not in the movie much. And it's like not too self-aware. So I really like that. And he's good in Pulp Fiction too, I should say.
1: Yeah, I don't mind him. I, I don't mind him in Reservoir Dogs. I kind of hate him in Pulp Fiction. But that's more about the writing and his obsession with uh having white dudes use the N-word. But that's a yeah. good conversation.
0: <laughs> yeah. But then um something like this I really liked. The sort of um disem- like this disembodied voice, this omniscient narrator. Like it just really is like Tarantino was telling us a story, which right. is what he always does in his movies, but it's it's far enough removed where that's the sort of indulgence, the self indulgence that I really dig. Yeah. Whereas for me, Django was a bridge too far. This was right up my street. It's like I love this. I like that. I like that you're just telling us and you're you're choosing what to say, and which is why this chapter is called. Domergue's got a secret. Somebody put, and he's having fun with the words too. I guess he narrates in, I oh don't know, it's Sam Jackson who narrates in *Inglorious Bastards. But,
1: right. Well, I was um, actually going to bring that up and be like, I, that would be an instance where it would have worked okay for me there too. Um, even though I, I prefer having Jackson do it in that scene because it, it continues the Jackson in uh, Tarantino streak alive. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I like your read on it. And that's, that was kind of my read as well, which is like, it it works for me because it's the author stamping his authorship on what's happening. You know, it feels like yeah. it feels like it's um, you know, him being the narrator of his own story is like it's fitting.
0: Yeah, yeah. And also, before we uh, round the corner on thing references, I also wanted to talk about the uh, before the shooting through the floor mm-hmm. when Sam Jackson has the three we've come to find out gang members up against the wall, very Kurt Russell in the thing with the blood test, yeah. that whole vibe of like, so just, it's all over this movie. But again, for me, not too much, the perfect amount of homage, but it's doing its own thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm on board with it. Um, but yeah, I don't, I also don't want to demonize people who, uh, who don't like that because I think it, it's a heavy hand, you know, it's, it's like, and, and anytime you're going, that overt with it, um, I I th- and I think the thing references are pretty overt in this. Um, mm-hmm. They they work for me, but I can definitely respect them yeah. <laughs> <im> not working on you.
0: Just like a selfish little tramp, dude. Like I I tend to like it when I know what it is. Like like in a, a more recent example would be in in Glass Onion. There's a scene where again that let's this be point, careful
1: on spoilers for that because that's a recent. movie. All
0: right, that's a recent movie, and this is not a spoiler. This is a costume choice, um, and I don't think this is a spoiler to say, but if you think so, you can cut it out. Edward Norton is a bit of a kind of a douchey millionaire in that movie, and at uh, one billionaire, he th- he's oh yeah, far from a millionaire. Yeah, yeah, a douchey <laughs> like billionaire in that movie. But there's one um, there's one flashback scene where he's dressed exactly like Tom Cruise in Magnolia, to like the hairstyle. <laughs> And like the, I the forgot outfit. About that. he looks just like Frank TJ Mackey, which would make sense from the timeline of when the flashback is taking place, mm-hmm. that that movie might've been kind of popular and also just shows like, how could anybody think Tom Cruise's character in Magnolia is cool? Like if you've seen that movie a lot, like you grow to your heart kind of breaks for him, but at no point does he seem like a cool guy and no, he's a piece of th- shit. No, he's a piece of shit, and you we get this interesting story of why why that is. We get right. Magnolia is awesome, but like that's the type of reference like I kind of like because I get it. I know how Frank Mackey looks in that movie, and and he's the douchiest character you've ever seen. And then Ryan Johnson is playing with that.
1: But again, that's a super overt reference. Like it is. Yeah, it is literally just his costume from that movie (laughs) and the hairstyle and so like if you've ever seen magnolia even once or even seen just the clip of him in like the you know he's like a a motivational speaker like the scene of him giving that speech is pretty famous on and is on youtube (laughs) if you've seen that you get that reference you know so like it's overt as shit. And I, again, I can understand someone being like, really, you went that on the nose with it? But <laughs> yeah, at I the same time, I, I really dig it.
0: But to, vote, to quote Frank Mackey, I'm away on a tangent. Let's move on to the next category. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of wanted to talk about, uh, if you're cool with this, Sure. The performance is a little more specifically. Do you want to kind of kind of yeah, knock let's talk through how the we actors. felt about each and one?
1: I don't wanna I don't wanna like go down the list and do like a, a history of every actor because I think we can get bogged down too much in doing that. Let's just maybe like highlight some of yeah. our favorites and and yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and what we thought of them, you yeah. know. I I wanna start with a tough one for me. I wanna talk gonna, okay. I wanna start with one I'm not in love with, but kind I of a also mixed love bag it. One? Yeah, mixed bag. Kurt Russell in this movie. Sure part of me absolutely adores his big cuts part of me think they're a little silly at times he's this very ridiculous character and it's hard to believe he exists but i also like enjoy seeing him do this stuff so i'm very torn i'd say almost every other character in the movie even they are even though they are all amplified. They're all playing it pretty big. I can imagine pretty much all of them existing. Kurt Russell is the one where I'm like, I don't really, I can't really see this person existing it's like the in the Yosemite real world.
1: Yosemite Sam. It's insane.
0: Yeah, it is. Dude, Yosemite Sam is a beautiful comparison. And it's just like, it's so, it's so big. So I don't know how I feel about it, having seen this movie six times or whatever it is now. What was your reaction on first viewing to 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 him in this movie to Kurt Russell in this.
1: When I first watched this movie and turned it off after 20 minutes like I said, I um at that point I was very underviewed on Kurt Russell's filmography. And having now seen pretty much I th- I think I've seen every movie he's made with John Carpenter, which is really where he kind of that that's how he became Kurt Russell was those movies, you know, like Uh, we're you know, we're talking obviously The Thing Escape from New York, Escape from LA, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. China. Now that I've seen all of those, I think I have a much better appreciation for what Russell does. Which I mean, he always goes pretty big with it. Um, he he is not afraid to be a a buffoon on on film, he loves it, he relishes it. Well, when you
0: mentioned Big Trouble in Little China, that's a very buffoonish performance 100 and it's what, great and but it's what great. i will
1: say is that is a much more restrained buffoon than this is this, yeah, is, that's this true. is a cartoon you know
0: yeah yeah he's just kind of dumb in big trouble in little china and a little overconfident this is like even bigger well, i agree with
1: in you. big trouble in little china he's playing on the fact that he looks like like a movie star like he would be mm-hmm. the the competent yeah. lead of a movie and the movie is playing on the fact that he is not the the driving force of that movie he is you know just this hanger on to this other he's story parasite. <laughs> and and like that's where the comedy comes from is he thinks he's in charge when he's not in charge at all and this movie i think is playing on some similar stuff there for sure um but it's, it's just going so hammy with it that it's a little bit harder for me to, to it's a tougher pill to swallow is what I'm yeah. saying. Um, yeah, so I, kinda, I still I kind of with me. Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm 100% I like with you. I, I mean, there are moments where he just is brilliant and, and you're like, god damn, I love Kurt Russell so much. And then there are others where you're just rolling your eyes and you're like, I, I can't yeah. believe you got away with this on set. Yeah. Which is like, like, you know, the mustache twirling thing you mentioned earlier. Yeah,
0: Horse laugh. Like that's, so I'm like, okay, that from from my taste, too big of a cut. But then there's like um, little subtle things. Like, do you remember when he first addresses the entire haberdashery? And he's like, I'm taking this woman to Red Rock to hang. Now, do any of you got a problem with me doing that? Like, obviously nobody says anything. And he, and he just says... Well, I guess that's fortunate for me. And he like starts walking across the room, and I just like really liked his delivery of that one line. So there's a lot to love here too. And at the end of the day, I would rather him go too big than too small. You for know? sure,
1: for sure. I think what I love about the performance is more the little touches that he has to the character. And like I'm thinking about just the way that he takes like a sip of coffee and the way he smacks his lips and like mm-hmm. you know gets the the, yep. the moisture out of his mustache is like. It, I love that shit. Like, yeah, that is the chewing on scenery that I'm like more of that. Please,
0: dude, as we're talking about it, I think I'm like 90% in love with it and 10% like, all right, a little much, but yeah, as we're kicking it around, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm getting like amped up thinking about Kurt Russell in this movie. Like even like the way he offers, um, Daisy Domergue, the, the, liquor for a coffee little snake bite in your coffee it's just yeah. like ah it's just like this guy is just so fun and Even one the of the way he
1: vomits blood is interesting dude, to me <laughs>
0: i was just gonna say <laughs> one of the all-time great death scenes in like movie in tarantino's filmography history but like the the vomiting of the blood and then him coming to the realization and like his like trembling look to Daisy, and she she delivers that line beautifully, where she's like, "When you get to hell, John, tell him Daisy sent you." And he's like, he tries to like kill her, but he can't kill her in time. She shoots him, like just a brutal death scene. But Kurt really plays it great, where it's like really unsettling, and he's just so enraged. And when he yells like ah! before he like backhands her, he's got blood all over his mouth, just absolutely crazy dude. Just a great. Just a crazy great scene.
1: But the full body committal to like the hose of, of blood vomiting out of his mouth is just like, like that's the kind of shit that like, go as big as you want with it. I love it.
0: Dude, and the only way, Sam Jackson makes this point later in the film, <clears throat> I guess it's to say Major Warren. The only way any of this works out for, quote unquote, works out for the heroes of this movie boils down to Kurt Russell warning Walton Goggins' character about the coffee. Like, right before he dies, he warns – because Chris was about to drink the coffee. And he stops him from doing that. There's no way Sam Jackson can hold off everyone on his own. He needs Walton Goggins in this mixture. So that little moment for that character of while he's on death's door preventing Walton Goggins' character, Chris, from getting killed – like kind of like foils Daisy's plan beyond his demise. And it's, it's, it's just a a little moment that is like, this is one of the many retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the many linchpins. And it goes to say something about Sam Jackson's character that of how observant major Warren is and how in control a lot of times, even when things get out of hand, um, the fact that he, his character recognized that as a major moment in this scenario, that little moment of, of, of Kurt Russell mentioning that to
1: Chris. Well, you just mentioned Sam Jackson. how do you feel about him in this movie? And uh, what do you think about his collaborations generally with Tarantino?
0: I feel the same way about his collaborations in general and in this movie. They're great. I think he's excellent in this movie. Is there anyone and... that can
1: deliver Tarantino dialogue better than Sam Jackson?
0: No, I don't think so. I really he's don't. He's perfected like, it he's he's and he was like he was perfect with jewels which is a very different character in a lot of ways than say major warren but um like he was like kind of bo- he, like they're kind of born to work together you know what i mean like the way he speaks is so well tailored to tarantino's dialogue and like vice versa whether it's the chicken or the egg and this is a, just another notch in the belt and i think he is such a fascinating character in this movie like he definitely seems like the the principal person we're all rooting for but he also has this very checkered history and i don't know i just i just love the character and i love the performance you know with like thinking of specifics like when they first get everyone when they first get everyone lined up against the wall and he has Walton Goggins, whose name's, character's name is Chris Mannix, I believe. He has him come over and, like, stand beside him. And Chris Mannix starts throwing around accusations like, The ugly one did it, Joe Gage. And Sam Jackson's, like, spinning the barrel of his gun. He's, like, reloading it. And he's just like, Let's slow it down, Chris let slow it way down. And it's just, again, like there's so many of those little perfect little deliveries that only he could do. Only he could say it exactly like that Sam way.
1: Jackson is like the metronome for Tarantino movies.
0: Yes, dude. I love that. Yeah, he keeps the rhythm. and you know, He probably helps the rest of the cast. But stay he does on that in,
1: in Pulp Fiction, too. And he does that in Jackie mm-hmm. Brown, like where he's he's kind of like this leveling presence where he's like, I'm going to control the tempo right now. Mm-hmm. You know, every yeah. scene he's in, he's like, he's doing that. It's, it's really mm-hmm. cool.
0: Yeah. Oh, uh, just when he goes through that story about the stew and, you know, we get, we get so much detail about a lot of these characters, just in little snippets. Like, I mean, I guess there shouldn't be a surprise based on when the film is set that he has had experience as an actual slave on a plantation, but we get that little detail of like uncle Charlie made stew on the plantation. And it always tasted the same and all this stuff. And it's just, again, he's just delivering everything so beautifully and within with what's in his control meaning not counting Channing Tatum in the floorboard he does such a good job the character does of managing this situation and when we get him sort of when he really sets his eyes on Bob and starts kind of circling around and we eventually get the reveal that Minnie did not like Mexicans and like he's he's just like the way he really kind of Traps Bob in this lie to the point that he can't get out of it is just an, it's a, an unbelievable character moment. Yeah. He's like, if you are a lion, and he like turns this back to him, and then he turns back around and is like, what you are. And he's just, oh. it's just like, he's just the coolest fucking guy, man. And I love him in this movie. What did, did you like him overall? And-
1: oh, I loved him. Yeah. I, I mean, what's not to love? It's just, it, it's a brilliant performance. It's so well acted. And, and I think it's like Sam Jackson is like, runs the risk of, of you kind of forgetting how good he is because he's so consistent, you know, mm-hmm. like he, especially in these Tarantino movies, he just like, he, he, he's this, un you know, this, this rock steady center to all of these movies. And you just feel comfortable anytime he's on screen talking. I, I love every time he's on screen. What's your favorite of his uh, Tarantino collaborations?
0: It's really close. It's probably this, and then a very close second would be Jules and Pulp Fiction, and then from there it's probably Jackie Brown. But he's like he's equally great in all of them. It's just whether or not I prefer the movie more. You know what I mean? Like he's always good.
1: I kind of feel. Like, I kind of feel like his Django performance might be the strongest in terms of just a performance. Oh
0: shit! Standpoint. Yes, you're right. But because I like most... I
1: like this and Jules probably the most in terms of like who yeah. do I want to spend the movie with and like listen to, to talk those two. But I think in terms of just the strength of the performance, that Django performance is immaculate.
0: It's perfect, and I forgot about the Django, even though it's like one of the one of the things I really do dig about that movie. You're so right because he. They, it's such a risky role for him to take too it's such a despicable villain and it's he plays it perfectly and he it's so balanced with all that like bumbling bullshit talk that he does in public but then when we see him in the library it just adds so much to our scope of the character. We're like, oh my God, yeah. what a performance.
1: Even though Django is not high on my Tarantino list, that library scene between him and, and DiCaprio is one of my favorite scenes in the history of Tarantino's writing. It's so yeah. fucking good.
0: Yeah, it's a great, great, great scene. And he is so damn good in that. Um, how do you feel about this one? Versus the others outside of Django, like setting Django aside, like between this and say Jules, like what, and you've only sat with this movie once I get. but Right,
1: right. No, but I, I do, I do feel like this is up there. I mean, like I, I, I think he's just outstanding in this movie. Like I, yeah. I was so taken with this performance and every time he's on screen, I'm, I'm fascinated. So yeah, it's, it's definitely up there. I think Jules still edges it out barely for me, but I, you know, if I watch this a few more times, it might, it might go up the list.
0: What I love about him in this too is we get to spend almost every minute of the film with him. Whereas like He really um, is
1: the main character. Of he's the,
0: the main character I think and he's like you know Jules has a lot of screen time for sure but he's sharing the spotlight. It's yeah I mean this is an ensemble thing too but he's sharing time with Bruce Willis, all these sorts of other characters, John Travolta, like I think in The Hateful Eight he's kind of in like isolation, because he's he's playing the game and he's alone. All of these characters, for the most part, are alone. Uh, at least our heroes, and they're trying to navigate themselves in this complicated chessboard. And it's just so fun when the camera really takes its time, just focuses on him, and we get to watch him. I think that's one of the things that really dig about the performances because he gets so much screen time, and we just like him so much.
1: Yeah, he's he's just so great. Um, I'm excited to rewatch this mostly just to like fall more in love with that performance. I think.
0: Yeah, dude, I think you're, I think it's going to age really well and I'm excited so to get too. your thoughts on it. Yeah.
1: I'll definitely check back in the, after I rewatch it. Cause it'll happen while we're, you know, during the course of our recording, I would imagine. But um, let's move on. I, w- I want to talk about Jennifer Jason Lee real quick. Cause uh, you know, she was in a bit of a renaissance when this came out. She was a huge presence in, in American film in the eighties um, you know, fast times at Ridgemont high was kind of her breakout and for a long time she was kind of seen as like the heir apparent to like the great American actress title, you know? Um, she was just this up and coming actress that people were obsessed with. And, and in a lot of ways, like never really reached her full potential, but always had the respect of the acting community. And like this year she had this and another movie that's on our list, Anomalisa. Um, she also was in, uh, Charlie Kaufman's other film, uh, Synecdoche, New York a few years before this, And she was in Annihilation a couple years after this. So she, you know, this was, this era was kind of her coming back into film in a major way. Would you, how'd you feel about this performance?
0: Oh, dude, it's great. And it's, it's maybe the, the, the most different between first and second viewing. So I'm so excited for you to see it again. But I think a similar thing could be lobbed to it that I said about the Kurt Russell. Sometimes the swings, are a little too big but for the most part they all work for me and she's so smart as a character and she's so dastardly and we grow to hate her so much but a lot of the things she says end up being true and like like when she gets in the carriage asked about uh john ruth who who is the character played by kurt russell And she's saying to Warren, Sam Jackson's like, you overrate him. I'll give you he's got guts. But in the brains department, he's like, you know, fell into a shallow pond or whatever. And then she gets elbowed in the face. But when we see what happens to John Ruth and we see his character, I think she's right. She's right in that moment that he's really not that smart. He's gutsy. He's ballsy. And you don't want to double cross him. But he's not super smart. So, I like, she's like... She she grows into a really interesting character. And again, like I said, when she is first walking into the haberdashery and she's making these little faces and like and she tries to get to play that guitar and she sings that song, which she does beautifully just from a performance level. Um, I don't know. I just think it's a great performance. I think the running gag doesn't really work with her face getting grosser and grosser as the movie progresses. I mean, it's okay. That's nothing to do with her performance, but... Well, no, um, I mean,
1: I think I think it does just in the sense that, like, it is a committed performance. Like, she is going for it in this movie. And yeah. not, there are, I don't think there are a lot of actors, male or female, who would be willing to, you know, ugly themselves up quite as much as she does here. Like she skulls matter. For it. And I mean, blood. <laughs> I, I respect oh, the performance on that level alone. Um, I, I didn't realize actually until doing research on this, this morning, but um, I, for, or I guess I had forgotten because I definitely knew about this at the time, but she was nominated for an Oscar for this and I totally forgot about it.
0: Oh, cool. I didn't know that either. I'm glad you got the nomination. Yeah. Also too, like um, when Walton Goggins gets in the carriage, and he's talking about Sam Jackson's history, and he's like, "Do they know how famous he was?" And they like, and then he she, she asks, "Dommageu Daisy," played by Jennifer Jason Lee, and she knows everything about him, mm-hmm. but just doesn't. What she waits until that moment of being asked to reveal not everything about him, but she knows his history, and it's just like again, this character is so schemey and so smart, and she plays with this really frightening energy of not being afraid about heading for the hangman's rope, and she plays every possible card she can and she almost worms out of it but she overestimates walton goggins racism mm-hmm. and she thinks that his racism will run so deep that he will not see the reality of the moment and she's wrong and that's like the only card she plays wrong in, in a lot of ways for sure things like her getting handcuffed back to kurt russell like she's not really in control of that you know but like she's she gotta you gotta respect the character's resolve to make it out of this alive but man dastard disgusting character at the same time and and a wonderful performance i think
1: yeah really really great performance um I don't want to spend too much time else on the cast just because I think we could again like we can spin yeah. our wheels for on all these actors. It's it's a great ensemble. I think everyone is pretty universally outstanding in it. I do want to I do want to highlight Walt Walton Goggins because I think oh, he yeah. is outstanding in this movie. He is maybe the, the standout performance in this for me. how did you feel yeah. about him in this?
0: Dude, I, I I think I'm with you. I think he almost steals the movie, and part of it is because his character goes in such unexpected directions. I love when a character in a story is I'm introduced to and I have zero respect for their opinions and I don't like them. And by the end of the movie, I'm in a position where I need to cheer from them and I end up liking it at the end. I love when a movie does that to me Yeah. and his performance early on, is so despicable, but he also, as just as an actor organically, he has an element of charm to him. Like he can't help but be charming, even when he's saying uh, terrible things and nonsense. But uh, so he he uses that he he weaponizes it for this performance in a really effective way. And when things are really slipping away from Sam Jackson at the, at the end of the film. And he's in the bed, he's out of bullets, he's bleeding out, and Walton Goggins has decided to listen to Daisy Domergue's pitch on what they're going to do. And on first viewing, I would imagine everyone thinks, well, he's fucking over Sam Jackson. Like, it's all over Sam Jackson's face. He certainly thinks it's is what's going to happen, and he goes on to say it afterwards. Like, I may have misjudged you, he says after the fact. But that look he gives when he turns back to Sam Jackson and he's got like the snaky look in his eyes and then he turns back to Daisy and just goes, no deal, tramp. And it's just like so unexpected. And so, you know, again, as with any good character in a movie, a lot of this is writing and a lot of it is performance, but it blends so well together. I just think it's a it's a stunning, stunning performance. And he was a Tarantino first timer and you know he would have things like monologues would be lobbed at him like 24 hours in advance and he'd be like wigging out and kurt russell would just be like you got this man calm down and he's like i don't got this man i don't have this so like he he handled that pressure super super well and he's one of my favorite parts about the movie what what you said you thought he, he stole it or oh, not oh yeah he stole, stole it, the but, show i think yeah.
1: i think it's the best performance in the movie i think he is just tremendous like you're saying like just the 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 unexpectedness of the turns that the character takes and, and, you know, you're, I, the one thing I do like about the structure of the movie and at the beginning, you know, even though I was complaining that I kind of wished it start started with the haberdashery, I think having Walton Goggins in that early bit be so transparently awful and, and a buffoon really serves that, that character well. Um, and I think that would be lost if you want with the structure. I, I, outlined earlier, but yeah, it's just a really great performance. He's not an actor that I have a ton of familiarity with. You know, he was on the shield and justified for years and got tons of accolades for both of those shows. Um, and, and he was always kind of one of those guys that people kind of wondered if he would become a movie star or not, but, uh, I don't think he really did. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I don't know, I don't know him as a performer, so it's really fun to just watch someone be this much of a standout against this many major mm-hmm. stars, you know, yeah. it's really cool to see.
0: Yeah. He's fucking dope. And like you said, everyone's great in this movie.
1: Yeah. But I, before we move off of, uh, Walton Goggins, when was the last time you watched his episode of community?
0: Ages ago ages ago and I think I only saw it once maybe I I don't even know if I have seen it
1: everyone needs to go back and revisit that episode it's from season five it's the episode where they kill off um, uh, Chevy Chase's character because they got tired of working with Chevy Chase Um, but they have you know Chevy Chase's character dies and then this episode takes place right after his funeral and all the characters are around the you know the the library table that they sit at in every episode and Walton Goggins's character is this representative of Pierce's will and he's coming in to distribute the gifts that Pierce has has given to all the characters, you know, left on the show. And he's playing this just super straight-faced lawyer type who's delivering a, you know, uh these insane monologues <laughs> that that Chevy Chase has written for him in the most deadpan way possible. Everyone needs to go watch this episode, even out of context. It is hilarious. And during the pandemic, um, they did, you know how they were always doing, like, like a lot of shows did these like reunion Zoom calls where they would like reenact an episode or whatever. Um, Community did this. And instead of Walton Goggins, it was Pedro Pascal reading his part And some of the lines that Walton Goggins had to say in the show, Pedro Pascal cannot get through. He's like crying, (laughs) laughing, trying to get this stuff out. It is so good, but watch both of those. It's, it's, it's hysterical. But anyway, I just wanted to mention that because it's, it's, that is my biggest connection to Walton Goggins outside of this movie. And I, I've rewatched that episode dozens of times. It is so good.
0: No, I'm definitely going to check that out. And honestly, with this performance in his, in his knapsack, like uh, it, I'm excited to see him. Like whenever he's in something, I'm like, oh yeah, because I I'm not really a justified or a shield guy. Like I just never got into it. So this is definitely my biggest brush with him, and I'm I'm interested to check out this community episode. Too, it's right? season
1: five, episode four for those who want to go check it out. And I know that that show is on Hulu. So yeah, go check it out. Twenty two minutes of your life well spent.
0: I wanted to really quickly talk about Channing Tatum in okay. this movie, okay? Because I mean, I, like we've been saying, everybody's great, but I have to give a tip of the hat to one of the all-time great cinematic o- okie dokes in history. Like I said, when I first saw this movie in You're theaters— You're saying I T-
1: didn't... Channing Tatum is on that that list? Yes, yes. Okay.
0: When I first saw this movie in theaters, like I said, I I didn't know much about it. I knew Sam Jackson was in it, and it was a Western. Outside of that, I didn't know. So I'm watching the opening credits roll by. It's an incredible photography of the Jesus uh, statue and— that Ennio Morricone score going. And Channing Tatum is by himself with an and towards the end of the cast, just sitting out there for all to see. And I go, fucking A, like in my mind. I didn't know Channing Tatum was in this. That's interesting. The movie proceeds and proceeds to the point where I completely forget he's going to show up. And then that the, the, the bullet comes up through and we get the flashback, and I'm like, oh, my God, I totally forgot he was going to be in this movie. Mm-hmm. His name wasn't hidden from the open credits. It wasn't buried in the list. It was put right in front of my face, and Tarantino magicianed it from my mind, and I was so surprised when he came up. Tatum's Did you know- become
1: the king of that kind of cameo, too. Mm-hmm.
0: And he also, like, is really good in this movie. This is my favorite yeah. performance of his by far. I think he is... He is sexy. He's creepy. He's terrifying, and he's awesome in this movie.
1: That's interesting. I, I don't know if I had nearly as visceral a reaction to his performance as you seem to have. Um, I think it, I think it works fine, and and I think the magic trick is is kind of fun because I I also forgot that he was in it. You forgot so too? Okay, back. cool. I was going to ask. Um, so yeah, like in that sense, it works, um, but. I don't think there was anything necessarily about the performance that stood out so much that I'm like, damn, we got to recognize this. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I just think he's in the flashback scenes. He's great. And obviously he's not in the movie for very long, (laughs) but uh, but yeah, yeah, he's I just thought he, he deserved a shout out. But yeah, great cast overall.
1: Well, I think maybe that's a perfect way to pivot into our ever present segment of Top Brutes, because Channing Tatum is definitely a Top Brute in this.
0: Oh, he is a contender for sure. And this might be the number one movie we've done so far for the Top Brutes category, arguably, because it is is, is so gratuitous.
1: Is this the only movie in history that gets away with two head explosions?
0: I mean, I bet there's some old war film or something, but (laughs) I mean, both are shown in such grisly detail. It's like, oh my God. Um but, yes, but yeah, Tatum, definitely Tatum, time Tatum is for a there. top root
1: Incredible top brute.
0: What are some beyond Tatum because I'm right there with you. He is he is he might even win it. Who else occurs to you in this top brute category?
1: Well, I mentioned that there are two head explosions. The first of which is a guy who I I I think was maybe already dead when it happens, but it's Demian Bashir's character, the uh, Bob the Mexican. I'm who, Bob <laughs> who uh after Sam Jackson shoots him twice in the chest, uh, Jackson then proceeds to shoot him with uh, double barrel to the face while he's on the ground. You know, Red Dead Redemption style, uh, <laughs> and explodes his head. Uh, that that one's even more graphic than the Channing Tatum one. So I don't I don't know if it qualifies though because he's dead by the time it happens. I feel like well, he
0: might still technically be alive, and then he's on his way also, out for sure. Let's give up because he's the first. Oh wait, no, he's not. Because I was gonna say, there's the vomiting of the blood and stuff, which happens before. But he's the first person who's shot to death in the movie. Yes. And that double barrel blast to the face is shocking, and it's like, oh my god. Yeah, didn't I've see never a, s-
1: didn't think I was gonna see a caved in skull. Uh, I know. You know, in when I turned this movie on, but there you go.
0: That is this. That is a supreme contender. Channing Tatum's is more surprising. Yeah. Because he, he comes out of the floor and does that moment with his sister. he goes, How are you? dummy pretty good dummy and then he gets back in the head and he's just gone from the movie and it's so uh ridiculous but i think bob's is more brutal because it's just over the face i mentioned earlier uh kurt russell's with the vomiting of the blood and the shot through the chest uh that one is he gets it pretty brutal look
1: me. no one in this movie dies clean it is bad no. for everyone <laughs>
0: No, and there's... um, Maybe the the cleanest
1: is Bruce Dern, because he just takes the one shot to the chest, really.
0: Yeah, Bruce Dern is probably the most fortunate. Maybe, um, oh, you know who gets it bad is Sweet Dave in the chair with the knife. Yeah,
1: Sweet Dave, yeah, gets... gets Sweet Dave sure.
0: is a tough is a tough brute <laughs> real tough brute
1: and that guy I don't even think sweet Dave gets a line he the poor guy is just playing chess and then he gets a he, knife he, in the back
0: he gets a couple of throwaways is your ass fat oh, that's right That's right. <laughs> and a couple of little lines here and there but not much
1: you know I think um, <laughs> a subtle top brute for this one is OB who vomits himself to death I mean yep, that's pretty the first that's, that's hard to deal with
0: the first of the poison that one is really brutal and Jennifer Jason Lee. Oh, yeah. Strung up by the neck at the end of the film as a brute. But. Um,
1: Which one are you going with? I am going with. Well, also, we should mention Sam Jackson taking a shot to the balls.
0: Oh, yeah. And then just slowly. Bleeding, bleeding
1: out, out through his nuts.
0: Over like hours. Um, I have to go with my gut. There's so many great contenders, but I'm going to go with Kurt Russell.
1: Okay. Vomiting okay. blood
0: uh re- he also gets the terrifying realization that she's won that she beat him like other people get kind of surprised and or whatever like she like he straight up fell into her trap and fucking got it
1: i don't yeah. know and if this is a through. fair way to approach this it might not be, and call me out if you if you think so. But I think just when you take in the totality of the brutalization that Daisy takes over the course of the movie, she gets yep. her teeth kicked in. She's got a black eye when you first meet her. You don't even know how that happened. Uh, she takes you know the elbow to the nose. She gets punched out of the the carriage. She, like the the stew, woman, hot stew thrown in her face. Hot stew thrown in her <laughs> face. She gets spit on. Like it's like everything terrible happens to this character and then she dies slowly by getting hanged, not even with a snap yeah. neck. She gets to strangle to death
0: while uh, she had to she had, die
1: and she had to cut off Kurt Russell's arm just to even yep. be able to move away <laughs> yeah. from the body. Like the woman has been through yep. the shit and she's probably awful, but I got to give it to her.
0: I'm still going
1: with Kurt, but
0: I think it's completely fair for you to do this sort of snowbally approach because it's all part of a piece.
1: I mean, even the hanging alone lot. is brutal as fuck. Yeah, but, but, but I'm the, saying like, I like you that you're saying, about add it in. all
0: up. Yep, no, I think that's totally fair. Two great choices. And she gets then a I got sh- her
1: foot shot in half.
0: <laughs> oh my yeah, she gets it so bad, dude. <laughs> and it, it's just uh, that's a good top brute, man. But if there was ever a film that had room for top brutes, this was it, man. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, I like that we're opening up top roots outside of the action category because this sure. movie deserves to be on that list. And who knows, one of these might qualify for our best uh, top route of the year.
0: I had a quick question for you. How cold was it outside in Colorado when you saw this movie? Like You said you watched it earlier today. Is it cold right now?
1: We literally got a big snowstorm on Wednesday. So yeah. Oh, I am there's, so there's happy to hear There's like a foot of that. snow on the ground right now.
0: I think this is my number one movie over the thing, for watching on a cold day, cold night. If you have a blanket and it's snowing outside and it's freezing, there are so there's so much coziness in this movie in a sneaky way. I don't know if
1: cozy is how I would describe it, but yeah.
0: Oh, I would. I mean, there's blankets, there's coffee, there's alcohol, there's a fireplace, there's just all these warming. Oh, elements I felt cold this.
1: watching this movie. I had to turn the heat up a little bit.
0: Well, did you hear that story of how they filmed it on a on a like uh, uh, an a ice refrigerated stage, set? A refrigerated yeah. set, and that's how they re- achieved all that smoke and stuff visually of like steam. Like, there's a great shot of Sam Jackson drinking coffee when he's trying oh. to goad Bruce Stern, oh. and the the steam like collects under his hat is
1: unbelievable. No one films smoke or steam better than Robert Richardson. Dude, the way he, he like backlights things, and the way that he like. He's not afraid to put a really intense light we're We're talking uh one way radio Bob over here uh,
0: <laughs> the bobcom the bobcom I don't uh, know what that thing's doing there? Get it the fuck out of here. We don't need that.
1: <laughs> Classic uh, Dark War movie night anecdote from Jared Given. Go back from, and listen to the episodes episode past. Who, who, who the hell knows when uh, that was? But, the, but, yeah. but Robert Richardson, from our memory anyway, from the story Jared tells, is uh, famous for having a one way radio where he just screams at his underlings.
0: He just barks orders out. They don't yeah. come in.
1: But anyway, he uses those underlings to get these crazy spotlights on like the table where you get oh, the dust, you that. know, coming up and you just you feel mm-hmm. the. The, like, you feel like you're in the room when you watch it. There's something so tangible about how he films all that stuff. It's great. Dude, I'm
0: right there with you. That soft glow on the table so many times. And never overdone. It's all done sparingly. And just the, also just the fun is we're talking about Bob Richardson, but the fun of shooting something in 70 millimeter, which was a generally considered back in the day when it was really popular, a vista medium. Like, oh, you use 70 millimeter to capture the glory of a Western landscape. And they do do that in this movie. There's a a contender for shot of the year for me before they arrive to minis where you see from afar the horse and carriage. And it's like going along a shadow, like on like a knife's edge between shadow and, and light. And it's Mountain Vista shot. It is an unbelievable shot. Well, so there is some of that seventy stuff there, too. Yeah. But they take this medium and then they throw it inside. Yes. And they use this wide frame to to give you a big scope of information that you can selectively pick from. You know, Steven Spielberg has often said how he likes to have the audience member be the last editor. That's why mm. I think he likes to do wide sometimes because he likes well, That's why have, he does
1: a lot in one takes too. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And he, he likes the audience to choose what they're looking at at certain times at least. I'm sure he doesn't do that all the time. But it's just so cool to see 70 mil used on in an indoor thing, but there's a lot going on. What's that person doing in the background over there? What's that look about? You know, you have so much to take in that they... Even though it sounds gimmicky that they're using 70 millimeter inside, I think they really use it to great effect.
1: I completely agree. That there are some truly outstanding shots using that 70 mil inside where you just like i don't know it just it makes this room feel like he goes between like the room feeling claustrophobic to being this wide and you know you're you're taking in all these characters at once i it's it's really really outstanding stuff i i love the way this movie is shot in general um but going back to what you said about being cold and you mentioned Colorado this movie was shot in my home state of Colorado down no, near no Telluride way. yeah I didn't know that that's awesome Yeah it was shot down near Telluride and apparently they uh there was a story that I read where they had an it, it was an unseasonably warm winter and they didn't have snow on the ground when they needed there to be snow on the ground and so Kurt Russell and I think Sam Jackson, maybe one other person, went to, uh, it, I forget what they referred to it as, but it's this, it was a ritual, uh, like a snow dance kind of thing where they like did a burn pile and like tried to, to you know, beg the snow gods for snow. And apparently the next day it, it just dumped and they were able oh, to film. Perfect. Um, but yeah, it was filmed on a ranch, you know, like 30, 40 minutes outside of Telluride. And now that I know that I really want to go visit it just to check it out.
0: Dude, that'd be a great, a great visit and next time you watch this movie, uh not that it wasn't cold when you watched it today, but at night with a comfortable blanket and like a, a cup of hot cocoa. Oh yeah. It is just you f- and you hear and throughout this movie we just hear the wind howling outside and you just like it's I don't know, it's just it's so love, it's such a sneakily cozy movie.
1: I love all the snow kind of coming in through cracks in the building mm-hmm. and like ah mm-hmm. man. Yeah, it's it's a really just the the look of this movie. And you know, you don't, it's, it's really commendable when you can make a movie that essentially takes place in one location, one room, uh, essentially for, you know, 95% of its runtime, it feels like. Um, when a movie can do that and still feel cinematic and like it, it shouldn't just be a TV show or something, that's impressive to me. And it, and it needs to be needs to be recognized.
0: Completely agree, dude. Um, I had a quick question, two quick questions I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. The bar or the fire, what are you taking when, when they divide, when they do that Civil War thing where we divide Minnie's haberdashery, the bar is Philadelphia, the fire is Georgia, what you taking?
1: As much as I love snowboarding and I, I go to a, an outdoor festival in in the snow every February uh, I am not a guy who typically loves to be cold so I think I got to go fire but go that being th- said it would be tough to turn down the whiskey uh, on the other side of it I room.
0: know I know if, if it it would be really tough if you could only have one like if you if we're at the fire but you can't have any alcohol or you're at the bar and you can't have any fire damn that would be a tough choice but I lo- I love that that whole little gimmick they do and then Another question I have for you is, do you think the story that Sam Jackson tells Bruce Dern is a true story or is it all fiction?
1: Well, I don't think it has to be either or. I think it can also be somewhere in between. Um, I don't don't think it matters, I think, is really the answer to it. I mean, look, if I'm going to guess, I'd say it's probably in between those two where it's like maybe he did kill him, but he's really like blowing it out of proportion because his goal is to provoke that guy at that point. So clearly there, I I think there needs to be some sort of um, expansion of it to, to, to egg that guy on. But at the same time, my, you know, I think ultimately from a story perspective, that's not the point. The point is he's provoking this guy. It doesn't really matter whether it's real or not.
0: No, I think you're right. I think you're right. And, and I think I would, agree with what you said if you were forced to answer, which I didn't think of until you said it. Probably a bit of both. He probably did kill this guy who's out to collect the bounty and is now embellishing the story to rally up Bruce Duran's character. So.
1: I did want to wrap up here on just a story from the set, uh, which is, did you hear about what happened with the guitar that they were using on set for that scene that we mentioned earlier? If of her I did, I, I
0: forgot. So no, tell me, Tell. I don't think I knew, I know this.
1: So for this movie the Martin guitar company um i don't i think that's what they're called martin and co i think is is the te- technical name i have one of their guitars it's like by far my favorite sounding acoustic guitar it's just the the tone on them is tremendous but i mean they've been around since the 1800s and for this movie the martin guitar museum loaned the the set a priceless like eight you know 19th century guitar uh you know for use on set to to be period accurate oh the guitar that kurt russell smashes in the movie was supposed to be a prop and they were supposed to swap that out in between shots he didn't know that they hadn't swapped it out so the guitar that you see being smashed on film in this movie is a priceless guitar from the 1800s <laughs> and Martin has now vowed that they will never loan a guitar to a set again for that reason. Oh. <laughs> so the reaction you see on Jennifer Jason Lee's face of going,
0: Oh, oh no, no, yeah.
1: that is her literally like in real life breaking and saying, no, no, don't do that. Oh my,
0: dude. Thank <laughs> God. I mean, I know that Jennifer Jason Lee was kind of channeling like the reality there of like, don't, no, no, don't. Oh shit. Thank God Kurt Russell stayed in character and nobody on set. Well, he, of course he did. He
1: thought it was a prop.
0: Yeah. But I'm so happy that that's the case because, I mean, I'm not happy this car, this guitar was destroyed. But if they didn't use the take, could you imagine how bad that would be? Yeah. At least they used the take. Oh, and, they used uh, the take. It kind of reminds me of that story of the toilet seat and the master, <laughs> how they accidentally broke a really like historically thing. Mm-hmm. I wonder which was more valuable. But, um, yeah, that that's that is so funny. Sad for the guitar, but a great little anecdote.
1: Yep. Uh, but anyway, I I just wanted to wrap up on that because I think, uh, yeah, we we got to be careful with our priceless heirlooms on set, guys. Come on.
0: For sure. Come on. Come on. Be careful with that. So I will just say to close out my Tarantino tier list, I have the Hateful Eight at number two. I think it is. Wow. Mo- I think it is his. his most underrated. And like I said, I have those different Tarantino categories where for me, number one is super rewatchable and the other is amazing first time experience. And this is my favorite in the amazing first time experience right next to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But, um,
1: so you've got, you've got one Inglorious Bastards, two, Hateful Eight, two, three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
0: Correct. Four Pulp Fiction. Um, so, Really, Why don't you just run really through like your this?
1: list one more time. Just to, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. Yeah, just no. Yeah, no ec- extraneous. Just the numbers. Gotcha.
0: Ten Django, nine Kill Bill Volume One, eight Jackie Brown, seven Death Proof, six Kill Bill Volume Two, five Reservoir Dogs, four Pulp Fiction, three Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, two Hateful Eight, and number one Glorious Bastards. Uh, so nice. I am a huge fan of this movie, and I think for my taste, it's his most underrated, and um, it's one of my favorites.
1: For me, this is a little bit lower. For me, I've got this right now at number seven, just ahead of Django and just below Reservoir Dogs. So my numbers are one, Inglorious Bastards, two, Pulp Fiction, three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, four, Kill Bill Volume 2, five, Kill Bill 1, six, Reservoir Dogs, seven, Hateful Eight, eight, Django Unchained, nine, Jackie Brown, and 10, Death Proof. So... I, I could see it going up in that ranking over time, potentially. But I think, for me, that's kind of where it sits in my, in my hierarchy. It's
0: fair. Like we've said, it's not the easiest movie to get into. It's harsh in a lot of ways. It's very violent. has a lot of difficult language. But there is a magic to it, the puzzle box nature of it I just adore. So I'm super glad that you liked it, though. I was nervous that you weren't going to dig it. I'm really glad you liked it. And um, super, super glad that we got to hit it. Most definitely. Most definitely.
1: Shall we put something new on the board?
0: Absolutely, dude. I think it's your week, if I'm not mistaken. It is. It is. Now, did something come up in conversation? Are you going to the list?
1: Going to the list. We didn't have Nothing anything that, really brother. that jumped out from, from what I mentioned before. Um, I've got a few ideas here, and I've, I've been tossing them around a little bit as we've been, been talking here. But I think I've kind of got it down to two. I've got one that's a movie from the seventies, um, kind of a detective story, you know something that we've we've done a lot of, so I think i I might be going for the other one here. and even though my favorite film podcast, Blank Check, has just covered this director as we're recording, I think by the time we hit this, there'll be enough of a gap there, and i it's a movie that I still haven't watched. it's in a format. That is not typically my cup of tea, but I think that's partially because I'm just, I just haven't watched a lot of these movies. Mm. The movie is 2009's Coraline, which is a stop motion animated movie directed by Henry Selleck, who is the director of A Nightmare Before Christmas. He's the director of monkey bone uh you know we're in the midst of the Brendan fraser essence uh people need to go check out monkey monkey bone because that movie is fucking batshit insane uh, but he's he's a legend in the animation world and i just haven't seen his movies and this is one that is talked about as his masterpiece um it's a movie that i've always been uh wanting to get to and just never have made myself do it and we don't have an animated movie on the list right now so i really want to do yeah. this one I'm
0: I'm super glad you're do, we're doing it because we do have Anomalisa, which is stop motion, but it's puppets. It's a totally different
1: Shit, vibe. I forgot about that.
0: Do, do I want I
1: to have... move off of it? No, I don't. No, wanna...
0: I like it. I like it. But this is like Coraline is is stop motion in a different way, and it's like with, with true like animation. Like Anomalisa uses full size. That's like, true. Like puppets, like people-sized puppets. Well, so that's what this is too. I mean, th- this is that,
1: um, but as well. But it's a very. It's it's more of, like, I, I actually kind of like it as a contrast to Anomalisa because Anomalisa is kind of like trying to take the stop motion art form and do an adult drama with that. Whereas yeah. Coraline is more the traditional. You know, kid is the center of the story. You know, um, hell yeah, dude. You know, I like it's, it. It's more like fantasy oriented. So, you know, I I I think. You know, I at first my in, initial reaction piece. was, "Oh fuck, I forgot we had Anomalisa. Maybe we shouldn't do this." But thinking about it more, it's kind of an interesting contrast between yeah. those two, and I'd be interested to be able to watch both of them maybe in fairly quick succession.
0: Yeah, dude, I think it's it's cool, and I mean, the dart will take us there when we should. But I whichever one we hit first, and whenever we hit the second, it'll be fun to kind of discuss them together. But they'll be their own experiences. I think it's like I almost think it's a strength to have two stop motion movies on there, and I like that it kind of we kind of backed into it, and and it seems like your gut is talking to you with this pick, so I like it. Like I don't think you should second guess it at all. I am into it.
1: All right. Well, two thousand nine's Coraline is going in at number eleven.
0: Nice. You want to do a quick rundown?
1: I sure do, Jared at number one we've got you can count on me number two akiru number three m number four rio bravo number five operation condor number six anomalisa number seven Amadeus. number eight pi number nine universal soldier number 10 the limey number 11 Coraline. number 12 the straight story number 13 thunderbolt and lightfoot number 14 the karate kid number 15 the friends of eddie coyle number 16 dirty harry number 17 tatan number 18 snatch number 19 strange days and number 20 the terminator
0: Coraline sounds good in that list, dude. I'm going to throw this thing. Let's see what we get. Hell yeah. I meant to tell you, I've been doing a little bit of a Hateful Eight reference for the past couple of weeks on the return from the dartboard, oh, yeah. which is, the dot has spoken, is a bit of a play on... Uh, The bar is open, which is what the the English guy says at one point. (laughs) I don't know if I caught that. But anyway, the dart has spoken. Oh,
1: yeah? What's it got?
0: 16. One, six.
1: 16 is Dirty Harry.
0: Dirty Harry. Bit of a shamer. Shout out to Jeff De for suggesting it. Neither of us have seen it. It's true. I fucking like it, dude.
1: I'm curious to see if we like this one. This is a, you know, I feel like it's definitely a product of its time. So I'm going to be curious how it holds up.
0: Yeah. And it's our first time talking about Clint, who forever and always will be a big dog candidate, just universally. Mm -hmm. Um, It should be a fun one. Unfortunately, at time of recording, it's only going to be paid a rent, but that's not a big deal. Kick in a couple of bucks. Check this movie out. It's supposedly a classic and we'll get to discuss next week if we think it holds up and if it. Kind of deserves in some sort of way The reputation it has So I'm, I'm excited man I really don't know anything about it Other than the fact that it's cops And I know the famous line That's like all I fucking know
1: You know I, Yeah and, the, and there are sequels to this as well And I'm curious to find out Which of, which of those lines that are famous For, for this character um, mm. Are in this movie versus other ones Because I know that they're kind of scattered I don't, I don't think all yeah. of them are going to be in here
0: Yeah, maybe it won't even be. I mean, I'm thinking of Do You Feel Lucky, Punk. But maybe it won't even be in this one. But um, I don't know. I'm excited. And I've also only ever seen Clint in westerns, pretty much, from this era. So it'll be my first time seeing him in like a cityscape, so to speak. So I'm excited. And it's one that's been on the board for a bit. So... I like Not it.
1: quite as long as the other Clint movie we've got on here, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. That's, that one's <laughs> been on here since like the first 10 episodes of the show. Yeah, but it's
0: practically an OG.
1: Yeah, but, <laughs> but Dirty Harry's definitely been on for quite a while, so it's fun to get to it. And uh, you're breaking, uh, b- breaking my streak of, of three in a row there. Oh,
0: uh-huh. still four is the max. Yeah. Pendulum swings it
1: does well that'll do it then for this week's episode on the hateful eight next week we're going to cover dirty harry thank you so much for listening everybody please remember to rate review and give us a follow on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you like to listen if you'd like to keep in touch or give us a recommendation drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com follow us on instagram at dartboardmovienight artwork for the show is created by veronica roman and all of our music is by eric williams play us out eric sorry mark later
0: this uh there's this one guy i work with who's like the only person who gets my references and there's a line that nobody seems to recognize is from boogie nights and i drop it all the time and nobody catches it and it's "asta mañana <laughs> <laughs> but josh
1: tettleton yeah, like, manana.
0: Manana. <laughs> and uh, Josh Pendleton, shout out, he caught it. He's was like, was that Boogie Nights? It's like, finally. Oh, my <laughs> God.